everybody to your rights to work i'm chris garlock here once again with ed smith if you've got questions about your workplace rights the ones you have the ones you don't have the ones you wish you had this will be the time to give us a call 202-588-0893 magic mike the engineer will get you on the air also we are in our winter fund drive our goal this hour 750 just a couple of contributions there, folks. Ed, how could people send us some money, send us some love? I don't know. I think I can figure that out. But uh, anyway, good to be back with you, Chris, and good to hear uh, that we're still on the radio. And keep us on the radio. You can reach out with your fingers and dial 202-588-9739. Add an area code 1-800-222-9739. You also, oh, Chris, you want to jump no, in? No, I, I, I forgot to introduce uh, here with us, Mr. Nick Arena uh, is with us to to help, to, to assist you in, in your fundraising duties. Welcome, Nick. Hey, thank you, Chris, and thanks for starting out the show so well. Exactly. I'm here to help us raise the $750 for the show, A Modest Goal, but the show is so important, Chris. You know, where else do you get this kind of information about what's happening with D.C. and the minimum wage? Where do you find out information about what's happening with the federal government's work to uh, increase uh, workers' rights and worker strength? You find it on this show, Chris, and people can donate super easily. They can just go online to WPFW.org and hit the Donate Now button. And as Ed said, they can call us at 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. And they also can give uh, using the Cash App, uh, dollar sign WPFW, and make sure that you uh, use your rights at work uh, on that tag to make sure the show gets credit. So we're looking forward to having a great show and, and getting uh, getting lots of support for WPFW. Thank you, Nick. Hey, Nick, you know, here, here's what I was thinking, and tell me if you think this is too much of a stretch, but, I mean, like you, I'm sure, i just been glued to the news in Ukraine. Uh, you know, my folks came originally from the, the sort of the Polish you know, area there, uh, and, and I've just been following this really, really closely. And, you know, one of the frustrations of a situation like this is is, is feeling kind of hopeless, right, and powerless, like, like what can we do so far away? Here, what I was thinking about was that, you know, here with WPFW and, and we're here on the air 24-7, you know, around the clock covering things 
like Ukraine, you know, like what's happening in you know, January, stuff like that. But that here's something where people can, can do something very easily. Is that too far of a stretch? What do you think? No, you can absolutely do something. The contributions to the station allow us to continue to provide information that people just don't get other places. The corporate media, uh, the mainstream media are not covering things at the depth uh, that we do. You don't, and these contributions that you give to the station, we use so well to keep shows like yours and others on the air. I mean, we can contribute to things that help uh, charities uh, other places, but where can you contribute to get the information you really need to live your life and live it effectively? You do it here at WPFW. Yeah, well, you know, but uh, last week we had a guest talking about the impact of war in Ukraine uh, for workers and right. not not just workers in Ukraine, but workers in Russia. And how does that affect them? And uh, I haven't seen any of that reported in mainstream media. It was a great discussion. And uh, if you want to have um, discussions like that and be able to listen to discussions like that, it is important for you to reach out and contribute because you're the ones that drive this station. We don't take corporate dollars. We take your dollars and try to provide a product that you like and enjoy and that's very informative. And uh, can you hit us uh, with those numbers again, Chris? I was going to let Nick do sure, that actually before sure. we move it, on because he's, he's got that great radio voice. I love it, Nick. Hit it, us. It, here <laughs> we go. You know, to donate, 202-588-9739 or one 800 Two 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 nine seven three nine, or go online to WPFW.org and hit donate now. Chris, we haven't gotten a donation yet, but we're just getting started. We're looking forward to, to making our goal $750 in this hour and I'm looking forward to a great show. Thank you, Nick. Nick will be back with us at the half. All right. We always do uh, news headlines at the top. Here are a couple of, of the ones from the week. REI workers in New York vote to unionize. Arizona Starbucks becomes the first outside New York to unionize. And union activists arrested at Amazon Warehouse in Staten Island. Yes, you heard that right. Here's the lead from my favorite labor story this week. Workers of the corporate world beware. A bizarre anti-union virus is raging across corporate America. Outwardly, the virus says it's not anti-union. But when it attacks, this virus shows its true anti-union colors. Now, that is from Two-Faced Anti-Unionism in the American Prospect. It's written by our first guest today, longtime labor reporter Stephen Greenhouse. Stephen, welcome to your rights at work. Very nice to be here, Chris. Oh, man, I tell you, you know, uh, I, I read a lot of labor reporting. Whenever I see your name, that's the first thing I go to. You've been doing it for a minute. I really like this piece that, that you did in the American Prospect. And you talk about how Starbucks, REI, the New York Times management insists, hey, we're not anti-union, but they're actually, you know, sort of putting a soft face on it, right? Yes. So uh, a month or two ago, I first saw that Starbucks said, even though it's fighting incredibly hard against the union in Buffalo and Arizona elsewhere, and even though it's you know fighting fiercely as it can, it says we're not anti-union. And your response is, you know, this is a supposedly respected company. Its founder was going to run for president, and yet it's really being untruthful. And I, I registered that in my memory bank. Then I then there's a story uh, quoting uh, some leaked emails from the New York Times, 
where it's CEO. And I was with the New York Times for 31 years. I love the New York Times. And I was very, very pained. I felt badly to see that the CEO of the New York Times, you know, which has been battling against this unionization drive by 600 tech workers, the CEO says, we're not anti-union. I'm not anti-union. And then I thought, so that's two big respected companies, Starbucks and the New York Times. And then REI, you know, a third quote unquote progressive company, uh, you know, the CEO issued this podcast saying, we're not anti-union. My father is a member of the teachers union. I love unions, but hey, we're against a union at REI, you know, which just on, um, the workers just voted yesterday in favor of unionizing at an REI store in Manhattan, the first of, of REI's 170 stores to unionize. So I thought there was this preposterous hypocrisy by these respected progressive companies. I thought, what the hell? And I thought this would make a good story. And, and when you think about it, Chris, it's like, why are they being so disingenuous? Some will say dishonest, even lying. And I think they're worried that if they come across as, you know, if, if they admit that they're anti-union, that will piss off some people who buy coffee at Starbucks. That will piss off some people who shop for ski jackets or REI. That will upset some New York Times subscribers. And they might protest. They might walk away. They might stop being customers. So they want to have it. They want to say, well, we're pro-union, but you know, we're quietly, you know, we're not anti-union, but we're fighting against unions. And, and I think that really turns off workers because workers say, this is hypocritical. This is BS. You're taking us for idiots, for fools by saying, you know, we see you're fighting against the union. So how can you say you're not anti-union? And one more point. And I say in my piece, you know, that I think these, you know, $1,000, $1,200 an hour corporate lawyers, anti-union lawyers are telling the companies, it would be clever of you to say you're not anti-union, even though you, 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 you're fighting the union. And, you know, you know, to be, to be truly anti-union, it means you don't, send out anti-union flyers you don't send out anti-union emails you don't hold captive audience meetings you know where people have to or force fed this anti-union propaganda you're listening to your rights at work with chris and Ed. we're talking to legendary labor reporter stephen greenhouse about the what i would call sort of the um the, the soft sell, the soft face of, of anti-unionism ed smith i know i know you want to jump in on this as always. Well, Stephen, thanks for being on again. And, great, uh, great piece. Um, you know, I guess for those of us in the labor movement that have uh, dealt with uh, organizing campaigns, no surprise there. Um, I, you know, a company is a company is a company, whether they're progressive or regressive. But I, I think what's funny is that you can say with a straight face that uh, up is down and down is up. <laughs> uh, and people will believe you. So I think it's important to have pieces like this out there to challenge uh, the rhetoric of your former company. Uh, so do you have you gotten any feedback from any of your uh, former colleagues at the Times? Some, the of my, some of my colleagues at the Times said, yes, thanks for pointing that out. And literally, uh, Kristen, even as we speak, the NLRB is counting the ballots in this election at the New York Times Tech Guild for 600 tech workers at the New York Times. And if a majority vote to unionize, and I believe a majority will, it will be the largest tech union in the country that has won the right, you know, won collective bargaining rights. And I, you know, and, and my sense is, you know, these, quote, progressive companies, REI, Starbucks, New York Times, you know, they, you know, they're certainly, you know, 
more progressive than Walmart or Amazon. And, you know, but they feel that, you know, it's fine maybe for people at other companies to be unionized because that puts more money in their pocket and that enables them to spend more money at Starbucks or REI or Ford and New York Times subscription. But they think, hey, you know, we don't want a union at our place because that might get in the way of what, you know, all these top executives learned in business school, maximize profits, maximize autonomy. And people forget that, you know, our nation, you know, as I explained in my book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, Future of American Labor, income inequality in the U.S. is the worst it's been in a century. And a big reason for that is that unions have grown so weak. You know, unions, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s were a very, very important counterbalance to corporate power. And they helped make sure corporations, you know, shared their profits, shared their prosperity better with workers to help lift, you know, millions of workers into the middle class. And, you know, these, the people at, at these three companies, I, I think they don't want a union because they worry it will get in the way of maximizing profits and maximizing autonomy. And they forget, forget about, hey, we're progressives. We're supposed to support a fairer economy. And a key tool to creating a fairer economy is labor unions. Why do you think, Stephen, that, that these companies, some of these companies, feel obliged to to pay i'm just going to call it lip service you know to, and, and they and they say you know you, you literally you know quote some of them you know ceo at rei which i'm a member i love rei uh but you've got the ceo saying you know we do not we do not oppose unions quote unquote but then he but then when he talks about why they oppose this particular union it's because it would it would mess up their efforts to quote resolve concerns at the speed the world is moving. What's he actually talking about there? So, yeah, again, you know, I've I don't have a business school degree, but I you know <laughs> interviewed you know I, a lot of business school professors and read a lot of you know business uh, teachings, and they say the key thing is maximum autonomy, maximum flexibility, moving as fast as you can your decision-making to keep up with the competition. In other words, you know, don't give your workers a voice at all, you know, just run over them, trample over them if need be, if that will slow you down and impede your autonomy or flexibility. And, and you know, as I write in my book, uh, you know, of all the industrial nations in the world, the U.S. US corporations are the most anti-union. And, you know, I was a reporter for the New York Times, the economics correspondent in the New York Times in Europe. I covered Germany and France and Britain and Portugal and Spain and Italy and Austria and, and Poland. And, 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 you know, corporations there accept unions. Maybe they don't love unions, but they see unions as a partner to work with to increase prosperity, increase profits, increase productivity. In the United States, in contrast, kind of the business school teaching is Unions are not just a nuisance, but they're almost evil, and we have to try to stomp them out. And, you know, that's why income inequality is so bad. That's why the voice of workers is so weak in the United States. And, and I think so many executives in the U.S. feel if I'm not successful in keeping out a union, you know, other executives in the business fraternity, if I may use that phrase, will, will look askance at me. They'll think I'm a wimp that I let a union come in. I think there's this like, in, you know, unfortunate macho thing that, well, we got to keep out a union because unions are bad. And, and, if, and if my workplace unionizes, I'll look terrible. I'm hoping that, you know, with union success at Starbucks, at REI, maybe at the New York Times today, 
hopefully at Amazon, you know, it won't, you know, union corporate executives won't feel so terrible if they're unionized, that people are more accepting that unions play a very important role, can play, should play a very important role in helping create a fairer economy and, re- and ending decades of wage stagnation. Well, you know, I find it interesting that your last point, I think that's a very good point. It's, 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 it's in your culture as a uh, corporate owner that you, you can't show weakness and part of showing weakness is accepting a union. I think that's a, I think the whole uh, idea of moving forward, moving quickly, and you don't have to go pass something by the union. I'm thinking more in working conditions changes. I think that teaching is based on a fallacy. Uh, the fact is, is I've been around 30 years in uh, dealing with unions, dealing with companies. And what happens is when the company tries to roll over and push some changes in working conditions without talking to the people that are it's actually affecting and the people that actually do the job and produce, they make a lot of mistakes because they don't know what it's like on the ground. The whole idea of a union, well, part of an idea of a union is that we do want to work together with management to have a productive uh, company. We want to share in those profits, but we also want to have working conditions that allow us to do our jobs. I mean, for example, I represent nurses. Nurses do not uh, have a power. They're not power hungry. They want the ability to do their jobs and they want a voice in the working place. And when you look at Europe, they have these councils where there's shared leadership discussions. Um, so what's your thoughts on my suggesting that the, the business teachings are based on a fallacy? So on one hand, I I mean, I agree, Ed, but on one hand, you know, a lot of business executives, and you've heard this, you know, they give lip service to, we want to hear what our workers have to say. But, you know, they often just totally ignore it, you know, kind of make believe. And, and, you know, nurses across the country have been howling in recent years that, you know, not enough is being done to ensure safe, uh, you know, nurse-patient ratios, uh, not enough is being done on PPE. Not enough is being done to protect them from COVID. Look at all the nurses who've died in the pandemic. And, you know, it's one hand, you know, you know, United States federal law, the National Labor Relations Act, you know, says workers should have a voice at work. They should have the right to have a union because it, it gives them more bargaining power and, and it can create, you know, more industrial harmony, which could lead to to better results. But, you know, as I said, corporations, corporate executives in the U.S. are kind of allergic to unions, and they forget that there are many very su- incredibly successful com- companies in the U.S., Southwest Airlines, Boeing, um, UPS, that, that are unionized. But, you know, I think uh, American corporations, you know, want, you know, they don't want anyone getting in the way. They just want to do what they, they want. I remember in my book, I quote uh, former CEO of Walmart saying, we're in the driver's seat, and we don't want anyone you know, to share the driving with us. And it's unfortunate because, as you say, Ed, workers, you know, whether at factories or, 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 at, or at Amazon on safety or, or in McDonald's on how to serve customers, workers have a lot of valuable insights. And management could really benefit from listening more to these, to these insights. Am I saying workers are right all the time? No. But they, they, you know, they're there, you know, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, every day. And they see a lot of things on how to improve business and how to be more productive. And if you listen to them, uh, not only might they have good advice to make your business more productive, but they'll 
feel more loyal, um, more dedicated to your company if you listen to them. And unions, in many ways, are a way to ensure more loyalty, more productivity at a company. That's uh, Stephen Greenhouse, a labor reporter, and you're listening to Your Rights at Work. Want to add another voice to our conversation. Now, you might have been forgiven for missing this amid the news this week of the war in Ukraine, the State of the Union address, and all Fs going on. But on Tuesday, Major League Baseball continued its lockout of players, uh, canceling the first two series of the regular season. Joining us now to explain what the heck is going on, working-class sports writer, our colleague here at WPFW, where he co-hosts The Collision, Sports and Politics, every Thursday morning at 10 a.m., Mr. Dave Zirin. Dave, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Oh, it's great to be here in these uh, distressing times, both inside and outside the sports world. Ain't it the truth, brother. Good to have you both, Stephen and David. This is our lucky day, right, Ed? I'm telling you, it's like we got all-stars on our team. <laughs> great to see you, Dave. I'm a big fan. Oh, great. Uh, it's likewise, and I appreciate being on, and I love the use of the phrase all-stars to describe us because it all ties together very nicely. Yeah, so, we try. We try here, Dave. They, Dave, they didn't lock us out. <laughs> I like you. And what what is going on with Major League Baseball? And, and, and I know we don't have three hours, but... You know. No, I'm going to say... I mean, people can read, you know, your basic AP article on ESPN to learn the details of the luxury tax and how that's dividing people or the new playoff format and the arguing about that. But there are a couple of basic points I really want to get across to folks uh, in the time that we have. I mean, first and foremost, and of course you do this on your show, but people have to, when they speak about what's happening in baseball, speak of it as a lockout and not a strike. Thank you. And people in this country, I think it has to do with our low rates of unionization, the historically weaker than we want it to be role of the labor movement, but people use those phrases interchangeably. My family does when we were talking about it. Oh, the, will the players strike end? And then one of them says, <laughs> oh, it's a lockout. Same difference. And, and maybe to them it's the same difference because they're not what because for them it just means they're not watching baseball but there's a huge difference i mean this is a this is about the bosses locking out the players i mean there's no collective bargaining agreement but they could still have the season without a cba absolutely you know and they could keep negotiating as the season goes on that could be a possibility they would just operate under the old cba but th- what the owners want to do the franchise owners is that they want to impose corporate rule over the players in a, in a manner that is as dictatorial and anti-union as humanly possible. And so anybody who really wants to see a high-profile instance of solidarity in this country, which I think we desperately need, a high-profile instance of solidarity, should be rooting for the players to stay together and to get a decent deal. Speaking truth to power, uh, Stephen, and I, you, you know, obviously you covered the labor movement for many, many years. I just, that's why I wanted you to stay on, uh, you know, when we had Dave on. Uh, I, I want to get Stephen's uh, take on this as well. I, I, I agree with a lot of what Dave says. I mean, the, the owners are like trying to like straight arm uh, the, 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 the players into accepting whatever the, the owners want. The owners have been very inflexible. You know, Tyler Te- Kepner, the main great baseball writer of the New York Times, is a very neutral guy. He, he had this big piece yesterday saying, you know, the management's offer was terrible. It was known. They, management knew that, that the union would reject it because the offer was so terrible. And I think the team owners, you know, these billionaire, often spoiled 
guys. Like they want their way. They don't want to compromise with anyone. They want to just push the union around. They see the mm -hmm. these great athletes as the help, and they think, you know, we're already paying them well. Who are they to to ask to be paid more? And and one other point, you know, I think the team owners are being monumentally self-destructive. They're doing huge harm to baseball. Yeah, maybe they could save twenty or forty or fifty million dollars if they don't give this or that. But if there's this lockout that goes on for, you know, for half the season, they're going to lose so much, you know, they're going to lose billions of dollars in interest, billions of dollars in revenues, not just this year, but in future years. And it's kind of insane how short-sighted the team mm -hmm. owners are being. Yeah, I don't think anybody hates baseball quite like Rob Manfred, the Major League Baseball commissioner, and the 30, peop the 30 billionaires who really run the sport. I mean, you might have a family member out there who says, oh, I hate baseball. I don't like baseball. I guarantee you that family member does not hate baseball more than Rob Manfred and the people who run these teams. And it's amazing, like the poison pills they keep offering up at the negotiating table are so insulting to the intelligence of everybody involved that you have regular, right? You mentioned Tyler Kepner. I'm thinking of Jeff Passan also over at ESPN, you know, who sounds like he's writing the you know, the 18th Brumaire, for goodness sakes, when he writes his uh, criticisms of what's happening, he wrote that, uh, he actually wrote this. He wrote that, look, you know, you could find 30 average businessmen in the United States, a businesswomen, to run these franchises, and the game would largely not suffer a lick. But you can't find replacements for the players. So here's Jeff Passan, ESPN, the highest possible sports platform, saying labor has value in a way that management simply does not. And this is not an opinion. This is about objective reality. And I think that is having an impact. Like, like I, I know that a lot of people use phrases like strike and lockout independently, but I see a lot more sympathy for the players out there uh, than for ownership. And that's something we should celebrate. And can I, can I say one more thing? I hate Absolutely. the filibuster. No, no, no. Go filibuster away, my friend. Limited time. I talk about them hating the game and disliking the game. And I just want to speak very personally about this. My, my son, who's 13, and his friends got really into baseball during the pandemic because it's a really good pandemic sport. I mean, first, they were it's one you could watch. It takes up a lot of time. <laughs> and then you could go out and play baseball yeah. and yeah. be socially distanced in a way that other sports like basketball, you can't. So they all got into playing baseball during the pandemic. And now they're like counting the days for the start of the season. And, you know, to see to see baseball push away these young fans in my own home is so frustrating because what has baseball whined about for decades is, oh, we don't have young fans. Oh, our sport is aging. Oh, you know, we're not getting gen First it was, you know, millennials, then Gen Z people into the sport. And here you have an opportunity. You also have a young generation of players who are super charismatic and super talented, and they're going to leave them on the shelf. And then just the last point is that this is a really special year for baseball. This is the 75th anniversary, the diamond anniversary huh. of, Jackie, of Jackie Robinson breaking the color line, the diamond anniversary in a game that's played on a diamond. And... This year is the 100th birthday of Jackie Robinson's widow, the amazing uh, Rachel Robinson, who's still with us. You know, we should be celebrating this right now, celebrating that moment where Major League Baseball uh, went against the majority of the owners in Major League Baseball and made this country a little bit more just 
and a little bit less racist. And this could be a moment for us to be celebrating the role that baseball plays in the social transformation of our country. And instead, they're showing how baseball can actually be a cudgel against people who want positive social change. And just Great. following up on what Dave said, if you'll allow me, you know, so Please. the nation is hurting. You know, we're, we've had this horrible yes. pandemic for two years. I mean, a lot of people are joyless. It would make people very happy. I mean, the owners should realize this, that it's not a good year to lock out. And there's this BS where they say it's a defensive lockout. They locked out their workers three months ago, way before the season started. So, so just like it's dishonest for Starbucks to say we're not anti-union, it's dishonest for Rob Manfred to say, you know, this is a defensive lockout. It's a defensive lockout. It meant very much to put the players on the defensive. And... Uh, and then, you know, it would be great for the nation, for kids, for everyone, if we had a baseball season. A lot of people love baseball. And yeah. there's so many people who can, you know, locked at home during the pandemic. They'll love going to, you know, you know they'll love going to uh, baseball games. They'll love watching on TV. And, and it's it's a real loss to the nation. And, you know, the owner, you know, and another, so, you know, reading between the lines about what Rob Manfred was saying, he was kind of implicitly criticizing owners for being inflexible, I thought, Dave. Maybe you read it differently. I think he wishes he had more, you know, Manfred knows how to reach a labor deal. He's, you know, reached the four past labor deals. And I, I think he realizes that the team owners are reining him in too much and not giving him freedom to get to yes, because these are macho guys, the team owners, they're billionaires, and they don't want to um, negotiate, show any flexibility with the help. Yeah. Well, Dave, I mean, I think the thing is, is that Manfred's boss is not the players, it's the owners, Mm -hmm. right? Well, in in historically, anytime you've had a commissioner that has chosen to see themselves as arbiters between um, management and labor, that commissioner has found himself out on his butt in a short amount of time before that. (laughs) Ask Dave Vincent how that goes when you try to see yourself as a neutral arbiter, as commissioner. And and, and the the terrible irony of that is that the commissioner, in theory, is supposed to be the person who stands above all of this and looks out for the best wishes of the game. But ever since the owners did away with that fiction, got rid of Faye Vincent, replaced him with one of their own in Bud Selig of the Milwaukee Brewers, I mean, making an owner the commissioner – it just gave, it gave away from any pretense that there is anybody out there looking at the issues that Steve was raising, like what's best for the country right now? What's best for remembering Jackie Robinson? You know, these considerations haven't been made at all. What's best for our young generation of fans? You don't hear that. Instead, you have Rob Manfred, um, you know, really playing the role of the villain, like joking with reporters, laughing about the, the, the cutting of the start of the season, and not really caring that for a lot of people, and I'm thinking young people, I'm thinking young people that I know, I mean, th- this is cutting them deeply to not have baseball to look forward to at the end of this month. To Rob Manfred, it's a joke. And, you know, maybe he's doing that for posturing purposes, for negotiating purposes, but he's certainly not doing it from the perspective of somebody who's looking out for the best interests of the game. Hey, we're going to have to run, but very quick question before we do. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering what's a quick assessment from, from you both on, on what's the solidarity among the players and, and, you know, are we going to have a season? I mean, I think you're both right. I mean, I mean, I, I'm feeling it. I, I, you know, we have so much, so I, I, I can't tear my eyes away from Ukraine baseball. 
would be nice. Um, yeah. quick, quick assessment from you both. Uh, Steve, I'll start with you and then we'll wrap sure. up there. I wish that during the State of the Union address, President Biden said, I'm going to get involved <laughs> to try to try to resolve like this damn it. thing because it's bad for the nation. And so, you know, I'll defer to Dave. I'm hoping, praying that they reach the settlement. You know, Faye Vincent, who was the MLB commissioner and was a very fair-minded guy, he slammed, he had slammed the team owners in Manfred. And he says what they're doing is self-destructive. And he was quoted the other day in the New York Times. We, the MLB, can't go on anymore because if we do, we're hurting ourselves. We're destroying our own lunch and our dinner and our own dinner. And that never makes sense. So hopefully, you know, words like that will will beat some sense into the heads of the team owners. Dave, you get yeah, last word, brother. Uh, you know, one of my uh, most remembered phrases from the labor movement is, you know, the best way to avoid a strike is to prepare for one. I think the best way to end this lockout is for the players to stay united. Uh, right now, they are united. I think they have to show the Major League Baseball owners that this is not going to go the way they expect. And if they do that, if they don't blink, then I think we can get back on the field uh, before the summer. But if they start blinking, I really think uh, the, the owners are not going to be happy just to win. I think they're going for the jugular. I mean, these guys are like, are like, the, are like elephants in that they never forget. They're still mad about Marvin Miller. In the 1960s, they're still mad about the 70s and free agency. So I, I don't see uh, this stopping anytime soon um, unless the players stay united and the early tea leaves say that they, that they will. But you never know when you've got a sport with such a limited shelf life where you can actually earn. That's the greatest impediment to keeping the unity they need. Yeah, no, I, I I totally think you're right. They're, they're definitely – and it feels to me like there's uh, some payback going on here. Yeah. Uh, it, re- it really does. Guys, thank you so, so much. Always a joy to have you on. Keep up the great work, and uh, we'll be checking back in with you. Steve Greenhouse, Dave Zirin. Thanks so much, guys. Good thank to you. be here. Keep, uh, keep up the good work. All right. You're listening to WPFW 89.3 FM, Your Rights at Work. I believe we have a caller before we go to our, uh, our pitch break. So uh, let's go ahead and go to the phone. Say, hey, what's your name and uh, where are you calling from? Uh, this is Nana Boache calling from Prince George's County. Welcome, welcome. Okay, and I, I am a retired labor activist and a uh, contributor to WPFW. I urge everybody to put some money on the table. Thank uh, you, brother. Appreciate that. Yes. Uh, in, in regard to the attitude of the baseball owners, uh-huh. uh it goes right back to the same attitude that the dukes and duchesses and kings and queens and counts and whatever had toward the serfs. You know, this is my land. You work for me. You're going to do what I say. That attitude permeates the American economic system. That's so, you know, like you pointed out about REI, about the uh, CEO not wanting to look weak in front of his peers it's, it's the same mentality. As Chris said, if, if, the, own, if the workers own the enterprise, and the, then they make the decisions, and they can set it up so that it works for their benefit and the benefit of the whole country, as a matter of fact. I think you make a really good point, and that was something that I heard from both of our guests, which is really interesting to me is that it doesn't really seem to have that much to do with the ostensible issues on the table. It almost has more to do with their manliness or a macho attitude that, like you're saying, hey, I'm the boss, you work for me, you do what I say. Is is that what I'm hearing? 
Uh, that's what I'm saying. And it's enshrined in the National Labor uh, Labor Relations Act. Management has the right to hire, to fire, to determine the, the mission of the organization, et cetera, et cetera. And the 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 workers have a voice, but that's that's uh, they have really no power under the law. You know, I've represented the workers for 30 years at 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 the um, before arbitrators and. And the the courts and uh, that the management has the right to, and the workers' rights are subordinate to. But Absolutely. it's, it's right. the owners who control. Right. All right. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your call. Really appreciate it, and thanks very much for uh, for joining our pitching team there too, brother. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Joining us once again, Nick Arena. And uh, Nick, how are you liking the show so far? Uh, the show is fantastic. Uh, and it's amazing to get people like Dave Zirin and Stephen Greenhouse on the show to remind us. Chris, remind us about what's worked in the past. Remind us about the history, not just of baseball, but other labor movements. Because we're all really in this together. We all benefit together. And, and we don't have a show on any radio station in the area that's like like the show Your Rights at Work. So people can give by calling 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. And if you're driving around town like I do when I listen to your show and I need to be able to uh, make a gift, I pull over or I'll do it you know, after the show, but I make sure I give to this show because it makes such a difference. We've already had one donation that uh, that's got us uh, started really well we've got five hundred dollars to go um just to remind people for a two hundred dollar donation you'll get the voices who changed the world flash drive there's many people in the labor movement in sports um Mal- malcolm x muhammad ali great figures of the past telling us what happened and how we, we can p- repeat it in the future people also can pick up a wpfw jazz and justice face mask for forty dollars as well as an I heart, I love WPFW for for seventy dollars. So those numbers again are two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine or one eight hundred. Two 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 nine seven three nine. We have uh, a donor in Severna Park, anonymous, to thank for their donation. Very generous donation. So go online or thank give you. us a call. Yeah, go online. Give us a call during this show. Make sure uh, you're you're choosing your rights at work. And, and Chris, uh, the whole impact about baseball, one last thing, is it's not just the players, but it's the jobs in the community. Think about how many people work at yes. the stadiums, work at tickets, work, do this work, um, and, and how much is taken away when there is a lockout, like uh, Dave described. It's not a strike. It's a lockout by management that's denying the community uh, the jobs and the incomes people need to survive. And, and I always love it. You know, people uh, need to realize a lockout is a strike by the owners. What they're doing is they're actually demonstrating their solidarity. And I'm generally pro solidarity, but not when it comes to lockouts. So, uh, good point there. And uh, we're just five hundred dollars for our goal. We've got about uh, twenty-two minutes to go, folks. So plenty of time to 
make that call, make that contribution by Cash App. Uh, as uh, as Nick was pointing out, not a lot of shows where you're going to hear Stephen Greenhouse, uh, you know, on the air talking about a piece that he's just written, um, you know, and and of course, you know, our we love Dave Zirin. He's a not only as far as I'm concerned, best sports writer in the country, but we've got him right here in WPFW. You got a double dose of him today. You got to listen to him on his morning show, and then you get to hear him. I, I could just, and I know Ed feels the same way. We could just kick back and listen to Dave all day, right? Right, Ed? Well, what I liked about that interchange, it was an interchange between two guests, and, and you and I did. I'm sure we both have lots of opinions, but that's what we like about our show. We try to provide the guests the platform and the opportunity to really discuss in detail uh, issues of the day and callers uh, the same thing we I I like taking more of a back seat and listening to these intelligent gentlemen one other point there was a great um, editorial today in in the Washington Post by John Feinstein John uh, John Feinstein uh, about baseball and I love I'm so glad that Dave Zirin also brought in Faye Vincent Faye Vincent reminds me there was a chief nurse officer at Howard University Hospital years ago that was wonderful. She believed in nurses and did all the right things. She got canned because she was <laughs> so these are the kind of stories that you hear on WPFW. And, and we talk about just every type of workers' rights under the sun. And uh, we really need your support. We appreciate your support. And we thank the anonymous caller for that generous support. But we need 500 more to go. 202-588-9739. 1-800-222-9739-WPFWFM.org. And cash app. You hit the dollar sign and type in the dollar sign WPFW. Please pledge today. Thank you. Thank you, Ed Smith. Thank you, Nick. All right. Next up, our final segment, the Disability Industrial Complex. Our next guest, Doug Crandall. He's worked for decades in employment and disability supports. He's an advocate for a sibling with disabilities. He's got a brand new book, 22 Cents an Hour, focuses on how the disability industrial complex is often impenetrable, mired in deficit thinking, and controlled by the lobbying of trade groups that do little for people with disabilities. Welcome to Your Rights at Work, Doug. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ed. Man, I've been enjoying listening to the show myself. Thank you. All righty. Well, listen, th- this is an issue. I was telling Ed earlier, I remember when I was a cub reporter, this must have been 30 years ago. I remember uh, up in Rochester going, I think it was something called ABVI. It was a place for uh, folks with uh, visual uh, disabilities, visual impairments. And they were, get, I, I want to say they were getting paid something like, you know, 10, 20 cents an hour. And, and I kind of assumed that that wasn't happening anymore, but you say different. <laughs> well, Chris, let me tell you, there are not too many people that would be able to pull that out of their memory. Those were those were two stories by the Wall Street Journal, those places that you're mentioning with workers who who happen to be blind being paid subminimum wages. And it was it was a huge story. Uh, But you're exactly right. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Uh, I've been working in the field for 30 years and thought we would have gotten rid of this many times. But as it stands now uh, in most of the country, only about 10 states have banned subminimum wages. Uh, but as it stands now, it's still legal in the United States to pay a worker with disabilities as little as a cent an hour, two cents an hour. Um, and, and that, 
as you mentioned in the beginning, Chris, is something that I think that most folks just don't realize continues to happen. Or if they do, they go, well, there must be a reason for it. <laughs> and the reason for it is probably, um, you know, one of the best quotes from anybody, I think, and maybe some of you have heard this before, but it's uh, Dr. Amos Wilson, who is just a wonderful civil rights leader and just a cool human being, great writer. And I'm, I might botch this a little, but he said, if you want to understand any problem in America, uh, you need to focus on who profits from it, not who suffers from that problem. And so the disability industrial complex, like so many industrial complexes, uh, try to keep us away from the main issues. If you're making 22 cents an hour and you are a United States citizen, that's probably not a great policy to have, but we're going to celebrate almost 85 years of that. And for every decade, there have been congressional hearings and oversight committees. The most, um, I think, scary and just atrocious example was in 2009 when Henry's Turkey Service in Iowa was exposed. 32 men with the label of intellectual and developmental disability. That's what we used to say was mental retardation. And I think because we have some stereotypes and myths about workers with intellectual disabilities, we go, well, it's okay. It's something for someone to do. But these men work for three decades alongside workers who are making in the 70s and 80s, 12 and 13 bucks an hour, uh, slaughtering turkeys, inseminating turkeys. And these men for three decades were paid $65 a month for mm. 40 and 50 mm. hour weeks. Um, and, and that was exposed, right? It was exposed uh, uh, by the news media, by others. And it kind of got into, you know, regular Americans that got a little of their attention. But here is how you know who has the power. Uh, you would think that that would have done it. These men, some of these men run away from Henry's Turkey Service. They were chased down, brought back, and some chained to their beds, right? Oh, my God. So we thought at that time in 2009 and 2011, Congress would do something. But what happened? The lobbyists, the trade organizations, the disability industrial complex lobbied against a bill called Fair Wages for Workers with Disabilities, lobbied against it. But most Americans would think these are the same organizations that are advocating for them. So if we can't get rid of it based on that, the two bills that are in Congress now, I don't have a whole lot of faith that we're going to be able to, to change that unless we bring this to, you know, the awareness of more people. So, so Doug, you know, and I, I want to get Ed in, Ed in on this conversation, too, but you know what this is reminding me of is – you know, something a lot of people don't realize either, which is the role of prison labor. People yep. say, oh, prison labor. Oh, it's in China. No, no. We have prison labor right here in this country. And, and you know, when you trace that story back, I suspect you come to the same place as you come here, which is somebody, if you have something where somebody is working for low wages, somebody's making some big, some, some bank, somebody's making that's bank, right. right? That's right. That's right. And yeah, I'd love to hear what Ed has to say. Well, you know, there's another huge lawsuit that was in Indiana in 1974, and they invoked the, the lawyers for over 7,500 people with disabilities in state institutions, which is your point, Chris, right? An institution is a prison. Come on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, haven't even, you haven't even committed a crime, and you're in an institution. You just have a disability. But over 7,500 7, patients, $28 million in back pay 
Oh my God. Uh, they were granted, but it was overturned by the Indiana Supreme Court. <laughs> but they invoked, the lawyers invoked the 13th Amendment against uh, uh, slavery and, and really said, look, man, these, these people are in servitude here. They don't have any choice. It's where they live, where they eat, where they get their medical care. Of course, they can't organize and have a union but they never saw a dime of, of that money. So it is a long-standing policy. And when you delve in to the congressional records, it, it reminds you not only of the prison stuff, but it reminds you of some of the really strong lobbies, lobbyists in guns, in, in, oh, yeah. uh, in healthcare, uh, you know, cer certainly around some other topics as well, that you know, if we can't change something after that, then what are we doing around public policy for this? In other words, if something does pass out of these two bills, one in the House, one in the Senate, we have to, we have to accept and understand that that means this is going to be policy for the next 85 years. It's been almost 85 years since it was put into the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938. So it is, um, it is a significant problem that's connected not only to organizing uh, and labor, but but to our stereotypes and myths of, of Americans with disabilities. You're listening to your rights at work. We're talking with Doug Crandall. He's the author of a brand new book coming out next month, 22 cents an hour disability rights and the fight to end sub minimum wages. Ed Smith. Well, Doug, again, thanks for being on the show. And, and what I find interesting is I bet you 99% of our audience would think that the federal minimum wage, which is at a paltry $7.25. Thank you. Be applied in this case, but clearly there's an exemption somehow uh, for a, a certain class of citizens. Um, how do we get here? I think you guys both uh, talked about it. It's, it's, it's greed and it's power. And it's uh, if I can take some sense out of your pocket and put it in mine, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but Going back, uh, so now we've got a lot of states who have hit uh, up the minimum wage. Um, do you have any sense of uh, whether uh, there were exclusions in some of these other states? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Great observation. There are in a couple situations, uh, but the the bigger piece is this has been this attempt to overturn what is known as 14C. It's the section under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, but, but it was in Raise the Wage Act. It was in Build Back Better. It's now two separate bills. Um, but that's the amazing part, right? That when you tell people 725, we can't believe that it's still the federal minimum wage. But, but when then you say, well, and, and where the 22 cents comes from is, it goes back to what Chris was talking about. The National Federation for the Blind began boycotting goodwill stores their thrift stores that's right that's um, right yeah because of the the freedom of information requests they found they were paying some workers 22 cents an hour as low as that but it, it, it's like any other story any other industrial complex in 1986 is really when lobbyists became alive and well in the disability industrial complex they successfully this is a a crazy phrase but there used to be something called the minimum sub-minimum wage only, only, in, <laughs> only in America could we come up with that. Only in America. But, but there, was a, there was an agreement that we wouldn't go any less than half, but the lobbyists said, we don't need that. We want to remove it. In 1986, 
a worker with a disability could then be paid a penny an hour, a half a penny an hour. So this dates back to not only 1938, but our views of disability, productivity, workers' rights. Donald Ellisberg, who's still alive and well and was at the U.S. Department of Labor, testified in 1994, and it's almost as if he's predicting Henry's turkey service because he says, you cannot regulate yourself out of this. It, you can't provide more oversight. It's a labor loophole that people are going to continue to exploit because those workers, and Donald Ellisberg put a fine point on it, have no way of organizing. In fact, in the legislation, it still says, look, if you're a worker with a disability and you don't like your pay, you can complain to the U.S. Secretary of Labor. Yeah, that's going to yeah. happen. Good luck That's with good. that. Good luck with that. Doug, we have got to run, but this is a great issue. I'm really pleased your book is coming out next month. We definitely want to have you back on to talk more about it. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was great. I really appreciate it. All right. That's Doug Crandall. He's got a brand new book uh, coming out next month, 22 cents an hour, Disability Rights and the Fight to End Sub-Minimum Wages out in April of 2022 you can find it wherever you buy books all right ed smith uh and nick arena is back with us as we close out this hour of your rights to work we're, we're closing in on our goal we are we quite, are chris we're not, there. we're not quite there but we've got a, a donor to thank sophie in washington dc thank you for thank your you, donation sophie. yeah and you can give now at 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or go online to wf pfw.org and donate now you know it's so important that we support the show you're listening thousands and thousands of you've been listening to the show providing essential information about our rights all of our rights at work and uh, time to support chris and ed and their hard work every week to do that so again 202-588-9739. Let's get over the hump here and hit our goal of 750. We got about $490 to go. Please, everyone, pick up the phone, go to the computer, make your donation to support your rights at work. Okay. Now, now, now Nick, I, I'm not talking out of school here, but I understand that uh, you're a board member here at the station and, and a treasurer. Is that, is that correct? Yes, yeah, so I am the treasurer of the local station board here, so I know very keenly how important the pledge drive and every show is to uh, the stability of the station. We're doing pretty well, but we count on this show and every show and every pledge drive to hit their goals in order so we can meet our budget and continue to provide you this quality programming day in and day out. Now, now Nick, when, when, when folks give, uh, give people a sense, and without getting too deep into the weeds, but, you know, uh, I, I've been at the station, and, and, I, and I've been at a lot of different radio stations over the years, and I got to tell you, I mean, we're not talking cushy chairs and uh, coffee service. Sure. No, this <laughs> I mean, is Spartan. It's a pretty bare-bones operation. It's, I right? would call it Spartan. I would say it's as bare-bones as it gets. Uh, there's no uh, extra spending. We... We watch every single dollar to provide the greatest value to the listener, your station, your community station. And as I said, providing essential information week in, day in, hour in, hour out. So, yes, Chris, every donation really matters. So whatever you can do will really contribute to this station staying healthy. Thank you, Nick Arena. Thanks also to Ed Smith and 
the fabulous Sarah Shine Engineering today. Thank you for doing that, keeping us going. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for contributing. That'll do it for your rights at work. Stay tuned. We'll see you all next week, everybody. A public solid announcement with guitar. Have the right.